We were joking again this morning about how um, sometimes I say I'm excited, but my, my excited face looks a lot like my sad face. Um, and it's just kind of part of my personality. So I am genuinely excited. It's always a pleasure to gather with you. You just have to trust me, even if my face doesn't show it. Um, honestly, I'm fairly emotive for an engineer. So if you know any other ones, you'd be like, whoa, calm down. Uh, like you're just out of control there. Yes, I know. So for those that don't know me, my name is Josh Walker. Um, I, I'm an engineer as a personality type, but it's not what I do for work anymore. Um, I'm an elder here at Cornerstone, and I work over at Eternity Bible College, and uh, it's a joy for me to be able to do that. And just to be able to... Are we yaying for Eternity Bible College? Because I'm all for that. Um, so it's, it's a joy to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, Todd's on his way to be doing some studying for his doctoral work this morning, and so it was a good week for me to be able to share. Now, as, as we come back, we're coming back to the book of Acts, and in one sense, we've kind of taken two weeks off from the book of Acts, but it really just has reinforced the things that we've been talking about. That is, we talked about baptism two weeks ago, and we got to celebrate at Good Friday and at Easter the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it just reminds us again of what this whole book is about, right? That at the end of the day, what this book is about is that Jesus at his death, burial, and then with his resurrection, he was the seed that was planted in the ground that would give rise to the church, that his kingdom would begin to come, would begin to be planted in the midst of of this world. And he said at the beginning of Acts, he tells the disciples, okay, now that I have risen, now it's time for you to be sent, and I am going to plant you. And by the coming of the Holy Spirit, they begin to be planted. And as we've we've drawn here on the chalkboard that there was that sense of not only are you going to be planted here, Right? He tells them that it's going to start here in Jerusalem with you, and then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria. Right? It's going to begin to spread, and then he says it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And here we sit, really in one sense, at the ends of the earth, in the stream of this. But what we've seen in the course of the book of Acts is that, that this weed that we think of as the church, right? This, this thing that won't die, that will continue to grow, that the way that it has spread over and over is these gusts of wind, And if you remember, the gusts of wind are the persecution and the trials and the struggles that the church has to undergo, and that those those waves of persecution come along and blow the seeds out. So just whenever you think of persecution, just say to yourself, this really blows. (laughs) Right? It's going to stick in your head. Because it does, and what it does is it blows those little seeds, right? The little dandelion seeds that then they land, and then they, they grow somewhere else, and they grow somewhere else. And what we're going to see as we come to Acts chapter 12 this week is another gust of wind. We're going to see another gust of wind come upon the church, and in one sense, this may be the strongest gust of wind that we've seen so far, that it's going to blow, and it's going to blow hard on them. And yet at the end of it, what Luke wants us to know as he's writing the book is that the word of God still goes forth. You see, at the end of the day, that's what this is about. That's what this book is about. That's what this chapter is about, is that the kingdom of God, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the church, all those things tied together will not be stopped. Even by martyrdom, even by death, even by imprisonment, it doesn't matter what happens. It will not be stopped. You see, this is an unstoppable covenant that he has started with his people, that the church is not something that can be stopped by anything that the world throws at it. 
So we get to Acts chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, put your hands in the air. We'll, we'll be happy to give you one. Um, we're going to be looking as we go all the way through Acts chapter 12. Now, if you're a student, you remember from a couple weeks ago, there's some of you that are probably like, hey, wait a minute, we didn't finish chapter 11. I know there's like two of you in here because it would be me. That's why I was like, wait a second, what happened here? Christian's going to pick that up next week. So trust me, we're not going to skip. Someone's raising their hand back there. Is that because you want a Bible or you realize we skipped chapter 11? finishing chapter 11. So we will come back to that next week. Now he starts right off, Luke starts off in chapter 12, and what you've really had happen in Acts chapter 11 is they've kind of gone off and talked about what was going on in Antioch and some different things, and we'll come back, and it's just exciting to see what's happening, that this is the point in the book of Acts where it transitions from Peter and primarily the work being going to the Jews, and then we saw at the end of that, right, that Peter began to um, go to the Gentiles as well with Cornelius, and you see the handoff now happening, and from here on out, after this chapter, the book's going to be primarily primarily focused on Paul and the message to the Gentiles, right? That in that progression of Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, we're seeing that transition really into those ends of the earth part. And Paul was the main one that was called to do that. And so we'll pick that up. But what happens is it's almost like you get to the end of chapter 11 and then he comes back and he says, meanwhile, in Jerusalem, here's what's going on. And he says, now about that time, Herod, the king Okay, let's talk about this Herod for a second. This is not the Herod that killed all the kids in Bethlehem. That was a guy known as Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the one that built the temple, um, built all kinds of amazing structures, engineers. He was one of the most wicked people that you're ever going to see in history. In fact, he killed one of his sons, his son who was the father of the Herod that we have here. This is Herod Agrippa I. His dad was killed by his dad because he was afraid that he was going to take over. Right, just a, a wicked man and all the things that he did. And what we read is that this Herod actually was much more mild-tempered, which is kind of funny when we come to this passage. It was like, what would it be like if we had Herod the Great still? Right, Because this Herod was mild-tempered, was compassionate and was kind, and yet still filled with wickedness. And we wonder why it was that he persecuted Christians if he was supposedly like that. And I think there's two main reasons. Josephus tells us, Josephus is a historian of this era. He tells us a couple things about him. One is he says that especially when he was in Jerusalem, he at least pretended to be thoroughly Jewish. That as trying to be the king of the Jews, he, he acted like they did. And so for him, there's a possibility that as he's seen the church grow and he's seen that now it's expanding out to the Gentiles, that may have been abhorrent to him. So that may be one reason. The second one that I think is even stronger is that Josephus says he's someone who liked the accolades of men. He liked the praise of men. He liked other people to like him. And at the end of the day, I think that's the main thing that leads him in his persecution So it says in verse 1, about that time, Herod the king, and there's an emphasis on his kingship. You're going to see down in in verse 20 and following as we come back to him, it refers to the the king's chamberlain. He's wearing royal robes. He's sitting on a throne. Luke's emphasis is on the, the kingship of Herod because he's wanting to contrast for us the kingship of Jesus with the kingship of Herod. The kingship of the one who is unstoppable with the one who is temporal. The one who is selfless with the one who is selfish. The one who truly is God to the one who claims to be God and suffers for it. You see, there's that contrast in the kingship that that Luke is setting up for us. And he says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
So he starts off just by some general persecution of people in the church, but immediately it ratchets up a notch where he says, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And it's crazy. Luke just, there it is, and moves right on past it. But Luke wants us to to really see the deliverance of Peter, which is going to be the next part of the chapter. But just stop for a second and imagine, right, we live in an incredible time and place where we don't suffer this kind of thing all the time. And I just want you for a minute to imagine what it, what it would be like to suffer this kind of thing, that, that for the church, for just some of us, for the government to decide to come down and persecute and beat and torture, right? That the, the official government over us would come down and do that sorts of things. And then, and then take one of the leaders, right? This is James the Apostle, Right, One of the inner circle of Jesus that we had, Peter, James, and John, the inner three that spent so much time with Jesus and he focused on them, that James, one of them, is now put to death. What would it be like in the church? I mean, can you imagine the, the feeling of, of fear? Right, Just like, like Terry talked about last week, it's like for these guys, it's like, hey, different day, same thing. Right, Jesus was taken and he was in prison and then he was put to death. Now we got James taken in prison and put to death and that's exactly the point. This is the footsteps that we walk in are the footsteps of Jesus. But in that we don't walk in fear. Right? It's we, we're no longer afraid of the persecution and you don't see in them fear. And it says and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he got accolades. They liked what he did. Herod was like I should do more of this. That's kind of an odd thing to think, right? I should kill more people because people like it when I do that. So he grabs Peter. says he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now this was the during the days of unleavened bread. Luke doesn't tell us that. It's just kind of an aside to know. It's how we know, why we know that Peter wasn't put to death immediately. You see, they wouldn't want to kill Peter during their festival, So that's why Peter stays alive for a period of time is because it's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread that he imprisons him. And it says, verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover, which is the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to bring him out to the people. By bring him out, he means to trial and execution. That was his intention, was to kill Peter at the end of the celebration. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by the church. You see, you look at what God is doing here, right? The, the point is that God is the one that's at work. Herod is our antagonist. He's the one that's trying to stop the church. And the point that Luke's going to make for us is that no matter what Herod does, King Jesus is still the one who has victory. Right, No matter what, what he does in terms of killing the leader of the church, killing, killing one of the apostles, imprisoning another one of the apostles, it doesn't matter what he does, the church will continue to go. And here's the question that I have had for myself this week. Right, there's, I just got to tell you, it's, it's rough to be the preacher. Because sometimes you come to passages and you're like, well, I know what he's saying here, but I struggle with this myself. How am I supposed to get up and communicate this to other people when I struggle myself? This, this is a we thing for me this week. At least it's a me thing. We'll see if it's a we thing. If that made any sense to you. <laughs> Fun with pronouns. Here was the question I had is, would I be willing to be under a wicked ruler who would even ultimately claim to be God 
would kill my friends, persecute those in the church, if I knew that it would result in the progress of the gospel. You see, I think we look and we look at the, the leaders and, and we, we get all afraid and we get all angry. And, and the reality is that often God grows his church the most when it's under persecution. That this is the pattern, right? The pattern that was set by Jesus continued with the apostles in the book of Acts. We see it all the way through that this is the pattern of the way that God does it. This is his means of advancing the message. And I had to ask myself, is that where I would want to be? If, if I had to give up my safety and my security and have a government that oppressed, but I knew that it was going to lead to the progress of the gospel, which it's not an if, that's exactly what he tells us over and over and shows us the pattern of that's the way it is. And yet, what's the thing we long for? The thing we tend to hold on to is our safety and our security. I, I just struggle with this. Right? I, don't, I don't want persecution. I don't want to see some of you oppressed. I don't want to see my children and my family have to struggle through this stuff. But at the end of the day, that's not the thing that's most important. The progress of the message is the most important thing. You see, as I was thinking back to last week and thinking about this passage, it took me back to John chapter 12. And I'll just read it for you. Jesus says this to the disciples as he's getting ready for his death. John chapter 12, verse 23 Jesus answers them and says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his death. And he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about his own death. And then he takes it to us. He says, Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Right? He's headed to the cross when he says, You must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. In the suffering and the trial, there's where my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, Jesus, he said the same sort of thing multiple times in different ways. He says, look, it's, I'm walking in these footsteps. You're going to be called to walk in these footsteps. This is the plan. The plan is for suffering and persecution and trial and tribulation to be the thing that spreads the church. It is to be the wind that blows and plants the seeds and sinks them deep into the ground. And yet I just get a sense of in my own life, and I don't know if it's true for you, that we don't want that. It's great to talk about in the book of Acts, and we may even look at places around the world and may say, man, that's terrible for them. Is it terrible for them? It may not be terrible for the church. Because God uses it for the progress of the gospel. You see, over and over, he says, this is the message. In, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes to the Philippians to explain why he's in prison, and he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. You, see, you read in Hebrews about all the different people, and some are sawn in two, and some are rescued, some are delivered. That at the end of the day, it isn't about deliverance or not. And as we read this passage, we see James is not delivered, and Peter is. It isn't about being delivered or not, it's about the message going forth. And that has been the pattern throughout history. You see, for them, when you look at them and you look in Hebrews, we see that what used to be home for them is no longer home. We need to feel that tension. We, we so easily, I so easily make this my home 
and I forget that I have an eternal city that is my home and that it's only living in light of that eternal city that I can live the way that Jesus is calling us to. He called his disciples to and is calling us to. You see, throughout history, this has been God's way of doing it. Not only do we see it in in Jesus' life, in the book of Acts, in the disciples, but let me read you from a couple early church fathers. Tertullian, 2nd and 3rd century, writes this, We multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. You see, the early church understood persecution, and they understood that it was for the progress of the gospel. A couple hundred years later, Jerome writes this, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others. He's obviously comparing with the way others approach it. By enduring outrage, not inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow and martyrdoms have crowned it. You see, the growth of the church comes from the suffering and the struggle of God's people. You see, we, we, we see the incredible difference between the Old Covenant and the fact that when you obeyed God under the Old Covenant, there were blessings, right? Under the New Covenant, over and over, it's shown that what the New Covenant looks like is to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, which means you will have peace. You won't have fear. But in the midst of it, you're going to suffer and you're going to struggle and it's going to be difficult until you reach your eternal home. That that's the place where all of the blessings and everything is stored up and waiting for us. It's not here on earth where it's temporal and rust and moth destroy, right, as Jesus talked about. It's that we lay up treasures in heaven that in the new heavens and the new earth, that's what we look forward to is that time when we will receive blessing and the reward for obedience to Christ. You see, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I, I hope you're seeing it's just this is all through the theme of the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 4, as in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking about the new covenant and the glories of the new covenant. And one of the things that he's talking about there is that everyone was looking at Paul and they were saying, you can't be a true apostle because life is hard for you. And, and if you're really following God, life's going to be easy. And he says, no, that's not the way it is in the new covenant. Because the new covenant are those that follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He said, actually, my sufferings display the reality that I am a true apostle. And he gets to the end of that and he says, and, and this is the way we all ought to say, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, we don't lose heart. Now Paul had suffered and struggled and was under intense trial, but he says, we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, Paul looked at his trials, his struggles, and I'm afraid that we've become so comfortable that one little thing happens and it's not light momentary, it's huge, going to last forever, right? We're like a bunch of middle school girls. We turn everything into drama. You won't believe what happened. Oh my goodness, did you hear what the government did now? Did you hear what the Supreme Court did? Did you hear about the new law that they're going to pass? Oh my goodness. It's light momentary affliction. And know that what he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's not even like we can say, oh, so, you know, it's not that bad in comparison. He goes, you can't even put it on the same scale together. It's like trying to compare a grain of sand to a four-ton pile of something. Gold, I don't know. I should think through my illustrations before I say them. That's how I get myself in trouble. 
Thankfully, I've kept my foot out of my mouth so far. It's not always the case. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's the key to this whole thing. Is that the, what you see around you is not the full reality. What we see transpiring around us right now is not the full reality. For James, for Peter, for the church, what they saw transpiring around them at that time was not the full reality. They knew that there was a reality of what was unseen. As we sang earlier, that the battle is won. It seems like we're still in the midst of the battle. Sometimes we feel like we're even losing, and yet we know from Scripture that the reality of the unseen is that Jesus has won the victory. And we need to learn to live in that. You know, as I was thinking about this, that for many of us, it's not necessarily trials and suffering because of oppression and persecution, but many of you are going through difficult circumstances, and I want to encourage you that your difficult circumstances are an opportunity for the gospel. That in the same way that Paul's imprisonment was an opportunity for the sake of the gospel, for some of you it may be health issues. Right? Like when John Piper got cancer, he, he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. And that was his point, is that whatever we have going on with us, God is using in order to bring progress to the gospel, to bring the message to new places, to do new things. It may be a loss of a job, circumstances in your family. It may be a loss of a family member. And just recognize that in all of it, God is still at work. No matter how difficult and how hard those things are. Remember last summer we talked about the book of Ecclesiastes, the reality that, yes, this message, we understand that the world is hard and yet God is still Good. You see, when we think about a weed, does a weed need perfect soil to grow? Nope. They sprout up everywhere. That's what makes them a weed, right? That's the way the church is. We don't need perfect soil. We don't need everything to be perfect. In fact, oppression and struggle is often what leads to the strengthening of the church. Now, in verse 5, we're going to come back to this in a few minutes. The church turns to its most effective means of assisting Peter. They pray. When we think of our most effective means of assisting someone in the midst of persecution, I feel like we turn to lots of other things before we turn to prayer. Let's have a protest. Let's have a petition. Let's maybe have a rally together. Maybe at the rally we might pray, but really it's getting together. Let's write our congressman. Let's do all sorts of stuff. At the end of the day, the church here just said, let's pray. Now we're going to see the funny thing is they didn't even really believe God was going to answer their prayers. We're going to come back to that here in a few minutes. Let's move on to verse 6. And Luke writes this. It's like an action movie, the way this thing moves. It's like an action movie tinged with humor. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night... Okay, so he's been in prison now for several days. God doesn't just say, okay, you just got taken to prison. I'm going to bail you out immediately. He leaves him in there until the last minute, right? It's just building up the suspense of what's going to happen. And the the church is continuing to pray that this is one of the ways that God likes to, he, he loves to demonstrate his power by waiting to the last second. I try to tell myself that's why it's good to be a procrastinator. Yeah, that's... That's what you call bad application of Scripture. (laughs) He doesn't want them to give up. They continue, and it's on that very night, it says, that Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Sentries were 
before the door regarding the prison. Right? So it's, man, he's locked down. He's chained to a guard on his right. He's chained to a guard on his left. There's guards at the door. How is this going to possibly do anything? In a human sense, this is a completely hopeless situation. The funny thing to me is Peter's asleep. The night before your execution, you think you'd be asleep? I don't know that I would. But Peter has the comfort from God. He has faith that God is either going to deliver him or preserve him through his own death. He knows who he trusts. And it says, verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter in the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you, and you'll follow me. It's obvious Peter's quite asleep, right? I read this, and it reminds me of getting up my teenage son for school. <laughs> right? It's like, got to poke him in the side. Right? You read that part? He strikes him in the side. Like, you got to get up. Now you get up, get dressed. And he was like, what? Oh, okay, get dressed. Put your shoes on. Okay, put your shoes on. Put your jacket on. Let's get out of here. Come on. Like Peter's just in kind of a daze through this whole thing, right? And it says, verse 9, and he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision, right? He thinks he's still asleep. I think that's how my kids are in carpool some days. Right? It's like, oh, I'm really on the way to school. I just woke up. It says, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord, right? Door just swings open. And they went out and went along one street, and then the angel left him. Right, he's gotten them all the way out. When Peter, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It's important when you think about this that you don't call this Peter's escape, but Peter's deliverance. Peter did nothing to get out. In fact, he had to be prodded to even get up, put his clothes on, and walk out the door. God's the one who set him free, and God made it incredibly clear, and he gets him out of there. And he says, what do I do now? He goes, well, I know where the disciples probably are. They're probably at Mary's house. Mary means, there's multiple Marys in Scripture. The, um, the mother of John, who's also known as Mark, who writes the Gospel of Mark. So it says, verse 12, when he realized this, right, he comes to himself like, I'm actually free. It's the middle of the night, and I'm in Jerusalem, and I just escaped out of prison. Probably shouldn't stay in the street, Right? He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Right? That the indication is that they're praying for Peter and for his deliverance. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. It's great, huh? Let me in, let me in. Who is it? It's Peter. Peter, awesome! <laughs> you know, somebody's like, come on, let me in, right? And she goes, and she tells them, right? I mean, this is just hilarious, right? And it, it builds the suspense, too, because now you got Peter, it's like, he's almost there. Right, you feel like you're watching an action movie, it's like, he's almost there, but they're catching up to him, and they're going to be right there. And then she goes and tells them, and here's just what's so shocking to me. The rest of the church didn't even believe he was there. Lord, please set Peter free. Hey, Peter's at the door. We're praying. 
No, no, Peter's at the door. A little crazy. Peter couldn't be at the door. Lord said, crazy, right? And what I love in that is that it shows us that God doesn't just depend on our faith in order to answer prayer. It was an encouragement to me to pray for things that I may not even really believe God's going to do because God loves to do those things to show how amazing he is. Right? It's amazing to me just to see what they're doing and to where she has to keep insisting and they're like, this is what they say. But she kept insisting that it was so and they kept saying, it's his angel. What they, it's, like, it's like saying, ah, it's just his ghost. They were more convinced that he had died and a ghost had showed up at the door than God had answered prayer. It's, it's just a wonderful, it's just so funny. So they finally, Peter continues knocking, verse 16, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. There it is again. What? God answered our prayers. Shocking. But motioning with to them with his hand to be silent. He's like, quiet down. Right? Because he's knocking, he's looking around, right? They finally come to the door and he's like, and they're like, dude. And they all come running out, right? And they're like, where have you been? We can't believe you're here. It's like, shh. Let me tell you what happened. They didn't set me free. God set me free. I escaped from prison. Quiet down. So he tells them first the story, and then he says, I want you to pass this on. He says, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison and said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Okay, this is a different James, obviously, right? This isn't James the apostle. This is James the half-brother of Jesus, which we see at this point, and then as you see de- developing in the book of Acts, he has become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. They were going to see him become very prominent later that as the elders have now taken over responsibility for the church, and it's not just the apostles leading anymore. It's a very important little point that you could just skip by. To James and to the brothers, and then it says he departed and went to another place. You see, at the end of the day, Luke isn't primarily concerned with us knowing what happens to Peter, right? It's like, and then Peter went to another place. Wait, I thought we were, it isn't about Peter. At the end of the day, it isn't about Peter. It's about the Lord and what the Lord has done, that the Lord has delivered Peter in a powerful way. That's what it's about. And then we see the aftermath of it. If I was to title the section beginning in verse 18, I would title it, You Don't Want to Be a Roman Soldier. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance. I, I like That's just kind of subtle. No little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. I bet. Wake up in the morning... Wait a second. What happened to him? He was chained to us all night. Guys at the doors. What happened? He was there. Especially when you realize that what happens for a Roman soldier is that if your prisoner escapes, whatever punishment that prisoner was supposed to receive, you now receive. And so it said, after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should, put, that they should be put to death. Which shows us again that his intention was to kill Peter. Right, because they get the punishment that was intended for the other person. And then he goes on vacation. Then he went down from Judea, Jerusalem, to Caesarea, which is by the ocean, and spent some time there. You see, as I look back over this passage, to me there's a few lessons that we can't miss. The first thing is to ask this. When we're in desperate circumstances, when you're in desperate circumstances, what's your first inclination? And is it to pray? I know we often get to prayer. 
But is it our first inclination? Is it my first inclination? That was the thing. I was like, man, there's so many times where I, I scramble to do other things. And it does, you know, whatever level of problem this is, I'm, I scramble to other things before I turn to God in prayer. Do we really believe God will answer our prayers or are we like them? I'll admit it. Sometimes I'm like them. When I do actually come and I get myself and I'm, I'm going to pray, half the time I'm not necessarily even believing that it's really going to happen but I know I should pray it. I think another thing that when we look at this, do we pray for those that are imprisoned for their faith? There are people all around the world right now that are imprisoned for their faith. Get a hold of Operation World. It talks about each country of the world and how you can pray for them and you find the place of persecution. Look at Voice of the Martyrs. There's all kinds of ways and resources for us to know what's going on. But pick something. Here's, here's the other danger of this is that in the world that we live in, to get completely overwhelmed by it. Oh my goodness. Pick a place, pick a person, devote yourself to prayer. I think that's what God wants for us. I don't think he wants just generic prayers, God, you know, for all those that are imprisoned by their faith. I think he wants us to have specific, in a sense, relationship with people. And it may be people that we've never even met, but we pick them, we learn their story, we learn what's going on, we follow what's going, and we continue to pray for them. And there's all kinds of ways to be able to do that. We come to verse 20, and we see justice. It says, now Herod, so Herod's now down in Caesarea. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. See, I'm insisting on being the king. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Josephus documents this exact same event, and he says that uh, Herod had actually made an entire outfit of silver. And what he did is he came out and he stood in exactly the right spot where the sun shone off of him. You see, he intended for people to see him as more than just human. He intentioned to be seen as divine. And it says, then the people began shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Right? His intention was to be seen as something more than he was. And he comes out and does that. And it says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now notice here, it doesn't say that he was put to death because he'd killed James and persecuted the church. At the end of the day, the more severe thing, and I, I, I think in our minds this doesn't necessarily compute, the more severe thing was refusing to give God the glory. Right? Read the Ten Commandments. See which ones come first. It's more important to honor God for who he is. The antagonist now here at the end of the story finally gets justice. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, so the same guy, Peter, who's suffering through and seeing all this, this is interesting what Peter writes. I encourage you to read all of 1 Peter chapter 2, but I want to just one little section there. In verse 21, he says, and he's talking about submitting to governments, submitting all, all kinds of different suffering. And he says, For, here's why you should do this, to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Right? You see, this is the recurring theme of how it goes over and over. And here's what Jesus did. Here's what it looks like to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but instead continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, what Jesus did when he suffered the beatings and the mocking and ultimately the crucifixion, the way Jesus endured that and did not go back at them, did not speak back against them, the way he did that was because he entrusted himself to the Father, the one who judges righteously, who judges justly. And we see here in this passage, it's exactly what happens, right? Peter didn't have to, they didn't have to worry, hey, let's find a way to assassinate Herod, right? Herod's killing the church. We need to get a protest movement to get rid of Herod. No, at the end of the day, he said, we just need to trust the Lord and the Lord will do justly in the end. And it's exactly what happened to Herod. And I just want to encourage you that I think that's the way we need to be able to walk. The way that you're able to suffer persecution and not respond, to suffer oppression, and not respond negatively, and revile, and speak back. And sadly, isn't, is the church known for that? Right? I mean, today in America, evangelicals, I mean, the people we're associated with, our names associated with, are known for when they are attacked, man, they come after you. Instead, he says, no, we should walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We take it. And the reason we take it is because we know that one day God will always judge justly. Peter, the one who went through that, wrote that later. And then we get to verse 24, and here's the main point. But the word of God increased and multiplied. It propagated, it spread, that the seeds spread because of it. At the end of the day, that was the most important thing. This is one of six summary statements that Luke writes in the book to emphasize what it's all about. In chapter 6, he says this, verse 7, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied. Chapter 9, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and it multiplied. Here in 1224, the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter 16, the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers. Chapter 19, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And the very last verse of the book that he was proclaiming, talking about Paul, the kingdom of God, teaching about Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You see, the message about Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end of this book. And what it says over and over is no matter what happens, the message goes forth. And it keeps increasing. It keeps multiplying. And sometimes he says it's the word of God that's multiplying. Sometimes it's the church that's multiplying because they're the same thing. But they're connected together. The message, one way, if we were to put it kind of in our vernacular, we could say the message went viral. It was trending it just kept going and going no matter what was happen, happening. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 40 where he writes, The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You see, that's the point. Is It's not about Peter. It's not about James. It's not about the church. That at the end of the day, the one thing that God is doing is propagating his message. And then in propagating his message, he's transforming people. And so the church is growing in that. And the message goes forth more. And it transforms more people. And as I think about that, I think just how short our time on earth is in comparison to what God is doing. We are just one little piece in this big story, this big picture of what he's doing. And when I think of the things that are most important to me, what are the things that are most important to you? Family, health, safety, security, job, all those things that at the end, ultimately, are you willing to lay all those things out for Christ 
to bring the progress of the gospel? I think that's the question that he really wants us to ask this morning. You see, the pattern of God's story in the new covenant is that his kingdom advances when God's people put it all on the line. You see, God's all in with this. You see it with the father sending the son and the son humbling himself to not only become a man but to suffer death and the, the most shameful type of death, death on a cross, and therefore God highly exalts him, right? We know, we know that from Philippians. And, and that God, in his, we can say he's, he's all in with this and yet sometimes we're kind of holding some things back. Like, God, that's great that you did all that for me, but I want to hold on to some of this stuff. And he's saying, no, what it means to follow him is to put it all in, all of it. Be, have open hands for it. You see, when God is in, interested in the long term. And by the long term, I mean hundreds of years. You're just one little piece. And he loves you and he cares about you and he wants your piece to be important, but you are part of a much bigger story of what he's doing. And for some of you, you won't know what your life was intended to do. You won't immediately know. You may never even know at the end of your life what it was intended to do. But are you willing to put it all out there? That when we say that we want to see progress of the gospel, we want to see revival. The only way we're going to see revival is when we say, Lord, we are all and you can have it all. And we could even begin with that prayer of God, you can have it all. We may not even completely believe that when we say it, but God, change us, make our heart be one where you can have it all. I think that's what God wants us to do this morning. Now, as we come to the end of the service, if you need someone to pray for you, there's going to be people up here at the prayer room, there's be pastors, elders up here to pray for you. If you want to get baptized next week, come talk to someone. For some of you, I think that's what it means to be all in. You've been holding back. You've been saying, yeah, I'm not even sure I kind of want to do that. Identify. For some of you, going all in at this point means I need to get baptized now. There's just different things you need to do. But as I pray, I, I just want you to ask God to show you those things that you need to o- open your hands with. There's all, thing, all of us have things we're holding like this that he wants us to open up. Let me pray. God, I ask this for myself and for all that are here this morning that you would take the the things that we hold on to and that you would take them from our hands so that you might be glorified lord our our heart's desire is that the gospel would go forth that you would be honored that you would have glory where you don't already have it and god we pray that you would just take us and use us in whatever way lord give us faith to walk in the paths that you have for each one of us We pray in the name of our Savior, King Jesus. Amen.